here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, we're skipping into today's podcast with some fabulous news. We're open to submissions again for the Books with Hook segment from October to December. To submit your work for consideration, please go to the podcast page on my website, biancamaray.com, to complete a form and upload your work. Now, you'll have a choice of which agent you'd like to submit to, because we'll be having guest agents on the podcast to look at queries in genres that Carly and C. CC 
don't work in. You'll also have the option of choosing whether you'd like to be a guest on the podcast during a special show to discuss your work with Carly and Cece, something that we'll be doing occasionally just to mix it up, or if you'd like your work discussed in a standard episode without you being on the show. We'll also be offering special content to our monthly supporters on Kofi, who will have access to written critiqued work from each episode, which offers more detailed critique than we're able to offer on the podcast. This includes edits and comments on a line level. You as the author will also get this additional content if you give us permission to share it on our Kofi platform. But if you don't want it shared, no problem. It won't affect your chances of having your work chosen. We just really appreciate our Kofi podcast supporters and would like to reward them with more additional content going forward. We're going to be very strict about our six-page limit, one page for your query letter and five pages for your work, which must be 12-point font and double-spaced. The query letter can be a different format, but the pages must be double-spaced and 12-point font. If they aren't, we won't consider your work. Now, due to the huge volume of submissions we receive, we unfortunately can't be in touch with everyone about their submission, even though we really, really want to. So we only going to be in touch with you if your submission is chosen for the show. So once again, go to the podcast page on my website, biancamaray.com, and you can register for the segment there. We're really looking forward to reading your work. Right, so uh, we've skipped into that. Now let's traipse our way into today's Books with Hooks. Welcome to another segment in which we're doing our experimental Books with Hooks category, where we have the author on the show so that they can answer our questions and enter into a discussion with us so that it's more of a sort of back and forth as opposed to us just sort of speaking into the ether and not quite knowing how our advice is landing. All right, so today we are very excited to welcome Sherry, who is our author who submitted to the segment and who very bravely agreed to come on to the show today. Hi, Sherry. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a thrill to have you on. Let's begin by having you read us your query letter. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. To repeat everyone who has submitted to Books with Hooks, I was thrilled by the launch of this segment. If I hadn't recently moved to the UK, I would have already queried Cece. I've heard about you in the past and love your analysis, warmth, and advice, and I know you like dysfunctional families. Now I've discovered Carly, whose insights are so helpful and who has experience with British publishing. Add this to Bianca's true take on everything, and well, you see why I was thrilled. I hope all that doesn't sound sycophantic. It's genuinely how I feel. It is. I'm seeking representation for Reconstructing Theo, my 109,000 word accessible literary novel set in 2005 about people unwittingly connected by an absence. When six adults, mostly strangers to each other, receive invitations from a dying man they haven't seen in decades, each immediately thinks, nope, but the lure of the letters can't be ignored. One by one, the recipients, a widow who reads novels in bed all day, a teacher wary of motherhood, an NYC ad guy in crisis over fonts, a California exec trying to end her latest affair, a German WW2 vet basking in his retirement, and a pet store manager facing his first romance at age 47. 
decide to accept the bizarre offer and set off on their respective journeys. As six paths collide and appointments grow near, a portrait of the absent man emerges. He was, they gradually piece together, a childhood friend, a charming patient, an overwhelmed father, a wartime hero, and a traumatized orphan. Meanwhile, the characters begin to uncover truths about themselves and answers to questions they've repressed for years. This book might appeal to readers who enjoy the interrelated character arcs of Leanne Moriarty's Nine Perfect Strangers, the continuous backstory reveals of Elizabeth Strout, and the wry but affectionate characterization of Meg Wiltzer. A note about me. Professionally, I've spent 20 years as a published writer and editor, so I'm very comfortable taking criticism, and I genuinely value a collaborative approach to revising. Personally, I'm from Northern Virginia and love to read, write, and travel. I long ago fell hard for England while studying Shakespeare in London, later earned an MA in fiction at the University of York, and my family returned to Cheshire two years ago. Below, you'll find my first five pages. Thank you for any time you can give to my submission. And Bianca, thank you for the shit no one tells you. I only regret that it took me this long to find it. Warmly, Sherry. Awesome, Sherry. Thank you so much for that. Okay, Carly, why didn't you begin and tell us what you thought of the query letter? Sherry, I thought you did such a lovely job with this warm, warm opening. There's so many ways to do that. And you just did such a lovely job. And it was nice and honest and earnest. Um, and we felt that. And, and that was really lovely. So the next paragraph is your, your paragraph introducing the book. So you have your title, your word count, everything like that. Everything's on point. When I was reading your paragraph with the title uh, and the word count and your hook with the six adults, mostly strangers to each other, I immediately thought of Leanne Moriarty's Nine Perfect Strangers. And when I scrolled down to the bottom of the screen to look for your comps, I could see that one right there. So that was an absolutely perfect comp for this. I was a little bit confused by the lure of the letters can't be ignored. I was a little bit confused on how they were going to lure all of these characters together. And I was definitely want like then the next paragraph I'm like trying to figure out what is you know what is to do with these letters and then the next paragraph you introduce all the characters um, but my big question was why does it matter that all of these characters are getting together and why now those were kind of my two big questions because when you have so many different characters with so many lives going on what is it about this moment that brings them together and why is it important and why is it special so that was kind of my my main question mark for this query it's very interesting there's no doubt about that and i think your comps are great but whenever you have this many characters so you have your six saddles mostly strangers to each other you know and then they receive these invitations but the stakes are pretty high in terms of delivering on all six characters so i think this is really interesting, but I'm just waiting to see what happens with these six characters and, and how they all connect. So I had a lot of questions about the whys of this. Why does it matter? You know, why weren't their lives fine the way they are? You know, how are they going to be pulled together? So, so a few questions are good. And so, yeah, I was, I was very curious about what was going to come next. Well, thank you. Cece, would you like to jump in and then um, Sherry can ask questions based on your feedback? Absolutely. Let's do it. So I am echoing all of Carly's comments. Thank you so much for that warm opening. This is what I would say an ambitious novel. It's high risk, high reward. 109,000 words. I'm assuming we get six POVs. I don't know. Mm, yeah. um, so that's, that's really hard to pull off because <laughs> we only get so many words with each character, right? And we have to feel invested in all of their journeys. I believe Carly has mentioned in the podcast before that one of the main reasons why editors pass on dual POV novels is because they didn't feel invested in both the characters. So with multi-POV novels, like I said, high risk, high reward, which again, doesn't mean you can't do it because 
you referenced authors who do it really well. Leanne Moriarty is a great example. I also got, I love that you mentioned Meg Wolitzer because I got the interesting vibes with this. Yeah, it is one of my yeah. favorite all-time novels. Oh, and I, too. right? So I felt connected <laughs> to all of those characters. And even though we got, we were inside all of their heads and, and it spans like, I read it years ago, but it spans like many decades. And yet mm-hmm. I felt so invested in, in all the characters. What I would say specifically, and I very much agree with Carly, I'll just talk about it a little bit more. The paragraph on plot is what needs work here. You did characterization really well. I absolutely understand who the characters are. Uh, I'm intrigued about their roles. Um, I'm intrigued about this man, right? So great job, six stars, amazing. The part about how the plot comes together with character is the part that we need. You nailed the inciting incident, the letters. Mm -hmm. But now we need, okay, so how does it come together? What are the stakes? And like lead us up to the climax. Don't tell us what will happen, that's a spoiler, but definitely tease us and make us go, oh my gosh, I wonder what's going to happen. I had questions when I read this in a good way, specific questions. Questions like, have these people met before? Maybe one or two of them have, maybe none of them have. I had questions like, was he a bad person to one of them and a great person to someone else? Because sometimes that's how people are, right? Like Mm -hmm. sometimes... Uh, you're, you're a wonderful person to someone and a really horrible person to someone else. And so I had all these questions, which is great, but they were all characterization questions mm-hmm. because again, mm-hmm. you nailed characterization. I do think the plot needs work and I can understand how hard it will be though, because it's a plot with six characters. So that's mm-hmm. tough. Okay. So, so just bouncing off of that. So something that I want to ask Carly and Cece, do you think it's important for Sherry to put in her query letter that there will be six POVs and that it's you, your POV, Sherry, is what third person limited to each character as you go yeah. to them. It's not third person omniscient, right? Right, right. So so do you think that's something that she needs to actually put into the query letter? So because you it was a question you ask, is it six people POV? So if it's a question you have as an agent, you think it should be answered in the query letter? I would have wanted to know. Carly, what do you think? I would have wanted to know multi-POV. You don't actually have to say six, but whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I assumed it was six POV because when you said six adults and then you named all the characters, I assumed I was the right Mm -hmm. assumption. I could have assumed wrong, but I did assume it was six. Mm -hmm. And I've used that in variations on this letter. I've experimented with referencing that. But then sometimes I've wondered if if I say multi-POV, does it suggest that it's in first person from these different point of views? Because it is, like Bianca said, it's third person limited to each one so it's focusing it's moving between characters but but stays in third person the whole time agents don't care too much about the craft part at this stage Mm -hmm. we're more curious about the plot and the storytelling so Mm -hmm. however you can pitch the story to us best is what we want because we all we do is read the query letter and then we decide if we want more pages or not and oftentimes these pages come in however quickly the, the author sends them but we don't get to them right away either so sometimes we're not even going back and reading the original query letter we just know that we liked what we read and then we go and read this book so as long as the storytelling is captured I'm fine either way okay so in terms of those plot questions that you had Sherry have you got some answers to that that you prepared to kind of tell us that might help us determine which of that information you should put into the query letter so Carly just as a reminder what were the questions you had regarding the plot again 
how are the letters going to lure the people? Mm-hmm. Why does it matter that they're being lured? Why weren't their lives fine where they were? Like, why does this have to happen now? Mm-hmm. Like, why um, is it a bizarre offer? You call it a bizarre offer, right? So the guy is about to die. So I guess that's the urgency maybe for him. I'll tell you what's happening and maybe you can tell me how to capture it because uh, I, I hear what you're saying and I think that makes a lot of sense. I've just, I do struggle with capturing plot because it is these six parallel stories. If there's an urgency to it, it's that they've heard from this person that they're all essentially estranged from and he's dying. And I guess I, in bizarre might be the wrong word. I, I, I feel there is something inherently strange in getting a letter from someone who you haven't seen in 30 something years, but bizarre offer I just looking at that term now, I think it almost sounds like is it what's he offering? So when really it's just an invitation to come see him. As for why now for them, I don't know, because I guess it's just they're all in they're all at these points in their lives, which I kind of try to capture in that that very long sentence. And each of them are just a bit disrupted by hearing getting this letter from someone they haven't heard from. And then each has to receive the letter, decide whether or not to go, and then make this journey. So the why now is just kind of he had this impact on them, you know, which I know doesn't translate well to a letter. So, you know, each of them, there's a reason none have spoken to them in so long. Each have their own reasons and they're kind of up against this chance. Okay, do I go confront this person? I mean, they do each, as you're meeting each one in the book, you see where they're, where they are in their life and their decision process. I don't know if it's, I don't know how to capture that in a paragraph though. (laughs) It's important that you establish what's at stake for each character that, and it has to be specific to each of them because the idea that he's dying and that's urgent is fair and universal and anyone can understand that, but it can't be the same reason for everyone. Otherwise it's like, so why did I need to hear about it from six people? And also, and this is like an ethical dilemma we're going to have here. I prefer offer because offer implies transaction which implies power all of life is about power and mm-hmm. all of literature is about power but if it's just an invitation that like lowers the stake i don't want you yeah. to change it to invitation right. can it be an offer yeah can sherry say what the offer is or is that bordering on like spoilers territory how how early in the book do they does the reader discover what the actual offer is like the details of it well, yeah, I mean, it's, it is more of an invitation than an offer, but um, because you do in the second chapter, you you see Marion getting her letter and it just says it's from my dad. Haven't seen him in 30 years. He says he's dying and he wants me to come see him. And that to some extent, as much as you know about it, it's and in fact, a thing I try to make clear in the writing from fairly early on that there's not some huge reveal at the end. And I try to make that clear as I'm writing because I don't want... Have you read Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant by any chance by Ann Tyler? I read that not too long ago. And to me, I I would love to use it as a comp, but I'm hesitant to use Ann Tyler because I feel like she's kind of a master at what she does. And it's quite an older book, but it has a similar concept in that there is no huge reveal so much as just all these messy dynamics that are feeding into each other. And you're um, teasing me with Leanne and Leanne has a huge reveal on Nine Perfect Strangers. Yeah. Well, there are, there, there, reveals in that sense in that you are piecing together who Theo is throughout the course of the book but there's not this big when you get to that last chapter I mean there there is there are increasingly 
important details unfolding. But to me, it's a very character-driven novel rather than plot-driven. But there is enough plot, I hope, to keep it moving. My question is also like, what's at stake if they don't go? Right, yeah. I think that's my big question. So I have the first paragraph that tries to show where they all are in that moment when they get it. So question A, I guess, is would you keep that and follow it with a similar paragraph that kind of goes through what's that? I I feel like I can identify what's at stake for each of them. I would need to put it into more thought. I mean, I need to put more thought into it. But, you know, would you recommend a follow-up paragraph? Not something long. You can just say like, there's, I don't know, in a more lyrical way, like there's something at stake for everyone if they don't go, you know, because with the thing with queries, the thing with queries and multi-POV is that's why it's so challenging to write these queries because there's so much going on. Yeah. Okay. So you don't feel like I need to go into detail per character so much as just make it clear that each person has a change they need to make or has some some urgency to it, some reason they feel has a specific pressure being applied to them. Yes. Like for example, one thing that you could do is, but the lore of the letters can't be ignored, like M dash, and then mention the pressures, just the thematic pressures, like financial pressure. Is someone Mm. like, does someone need money? And is that why they're going to go see this man? Because they don't want to. Like the first Mm -hmm. answer was nope, but like financial pressure or like guilt or like, and it can't be all the same for all of them. Like it has to be, and you can mention like two or three or, or I agree with Carly, like really, as long as you tell me and make me a promise that there is a specific reason for each person, a specific thing at stake, um, that's, that's, that's pushing them because otherwise it's not a conflict, right? Like they don't want to go, but they have to. Okay. So what is the thing that's forcing them? What's the, what's the pressure being applied? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's like got dark secrets that he will reveal about one of them if they don't come or maybe there's blackmail or whatever Mm, the case. Yeah. Blackmail is always good or something like that. Like, like you say, the the stakes, like if they don't go, what will then happen? Is it just a case of meh, they don't go and that's that, but you know, or, or what is the big thing that's going to happen if they don't go? Regret is really passive, right? You don't want like regret necessarily. You need like a thing. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I also Uh realized I didn't say something really important about the query letter that I forgot that is totally unrelated to plot. Uh-huh. Um, your first paragraph, you say, if I had moved to the UK, I would have already queried CC. Listeners of books with hooks, you are allowed <laughs> to query me no matter where in the world you are. Same with Carly, because yeah. it doesn't matter where you are in the world. We want a good yeah. story. So, yeah. so please, please and thank okay. you. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Um, this is also helpful though. So I'm, I'm going to work on conveying what the stakes are for the individuals, but not necessarily going deep into the plot, but that's Don't make it any longer than it is. Like don't make the the query letter any longer. And usually I'm not querying three people. So that opening paragraph is usually a little shorter. Doesn't have to be that, doesn't have to be that long at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So Sherry, will you just give our listeners a bit of a summary of what we are seeing on those opening pages so that they can understand the critique as we give it? Okay. So because there are six main characters, the first six chapters are introducing each of them. You're just kind of seeing where they are in their life when the letter arrives or right before the letter arrives. And so included in the first five pages are two and a half chapters. So the first chapter is Isabel. You realize she's an older woman, recently widowed, standing on a beach, kind of having a conversation with her deceased husband. She's kind of casually contemplating suicide, thinking about Virginia Woolf, thinking, you know, eventually decides there's too many great books to read. She's not gonna, she's not gonna do it. And then a dog comes walking along the beach. (laughs) 
she watches it poop. She laughs about it with her deceased husband who she's kind of talking to in her mind. And then she goes back home and she's not gotten her letter yet. The second chapter, the first letter arrives and that goes to a woman named Marion. You realize from the first paragraph that it came from only three miles away. So now you've got a woman, she's been away on vacation. When she gets her letter, you realize it's from her father. She hasn't seen him in 30 years and she's a little shocked by receiving it and just kind of leaves to run to go lie down. The third chapter introduces Elliot, who I don't know if it says it here, but he's about 29. He lives in New York City. He is at work at a job that he's not thrilled with. He's fielding a call from a client. They're in advertising. He gets a call from kind of a quirky client. They have kind of a silly conversation about they use the wrong font on an ad and that's when it ends. Okay, great. All right. So Carly, do you want to dive into those opening pages first? So with Isabel, I felt like this was like, you know, we're we're starting off, we're, you know, grounding us in place, that sort of thing. And then I got to Marion and I think this should be the first section because that first line, the first letter to arrive was addressed to Marion Winkle of Winsdale, Connecticut. I just thought that was such a great first line. And I feel like I like the quirkiness of this section more in terms of capturing my, capturing my attention. I love that the house sitter just like walks around the house, turning on all the lights. Like it's to me, it's just like very cinematic, very quirky and very interesting in a way that I felt like Isabel's section was a bit more literary and you're going for accessible literary right and so that's mm-hmm. why I would go with Marion to start with because mm-hmm. anyway I just I just like the quirkiness of this section a bit more the only thing I would change in Marion's section is the dialogue on page four so the husband and I'm I guessing it's the husband and wife um, Marion and the husband talking they're saying it's a forum letter he's dying he's given appointment time what the hell and then the husband says how long has it been since you've seen dear Theo and then I just thought like wouldn't the husband know the last time that his wife saw her dad I don't know I just felt like mm-hmm. that was a bit like a leading for the sake of the reader so mm-hmm. I would just try and smooth that dialogue out a little bit more just to feel like a little bit little bit less leading mm-hmm. um, for us and then I thought um, Elliot's section was really unique really eye-catching in terms of like I just loved the little quirky setting there so I feel like the the quirkiness and the accessibility were much stronger in sections two and three there's nothing inherently wrong with section one it just starts a little depressing right because she's mm-hmm. literally thinking about committing suicide right mm-hmm. and so I just mm-hmm. feel like that is a bit of a downer um, mm-hmm. to start with in terms of like drawing people in because if you commit yeah. suicide then the book's over so mm-hmm. we know she's probably not going to do that or this character's POV is over right and so that yeah. felt like we're drawing sympathy or you're, we're attempting to draw that sympathy and empathy out and it just didn't really feel like that was the starting place to me so mm-hmm. that's kind of my analysis but the writing is really really elegant really sophisticated um, really scene oriented yeah my only real critique in terms of craft is just that dialogue section I thought you mm-hmm. did a really beautiful job oh thank you Awesome, Carly. Okay, Cece, what are your thoughts? We'll get to uh, you, Sherry, a little bit later in terms of asking questions about it. For now, Cece, what did you think? These are incredibly strong pages. I, you know, shout out to you for being able to, in each of these chapters, obviously not the third because we didn't get to the end of the third chapter, you nailed the entry point and the exit point, right? Like I was immediately immersed in each of these characters and then the last line of each chapter just felt like a nice way to, to round it up in a quick way. And then I was curious about the next person. So that's really hard to do. So that's incredible. I also really like that you just gave us like the name and the location at the beginning. I just, 
easy with multi-PUV, like it's just yeah. essential, honestly. So that's also great. One of the questions I had was like, where are we in time? Is this contemporary? Because mm. she's thinking of Marilyn Monroe, right? Which I know like super classical person and mm-hmm. I could be thinking of Marilyn Monroe in 2021, but it did make me wonder like, when is this taking place? But then also towards the end of that chapter, we learned that she's older mm. in a really elegant way, by the way. you The line is, to the pair, the pair is the person who shows up on the beach, which is like a, a man and a dog. To the pair, she knew she was just an old lady with scraggly white hair staring mindlessly at the water. Um, that's a very elegant way to convey what someone looks like, which is hard to do when you're in their mind because no one goes to themselves, <laughs> I am a person with dark hair. Um, so you nailed that. And I, I really loved it. So I 100% agree with Carly. Had not thought about it, but now that she said it about starting with Marion, yes, please start with Marion. It's just, it's just more high stakes and less passive, less passive isn't even the word, but less quiet. You nail quiet. You do quiet really well, but it's still quiet, right? So mm-hmm. I love that. I kept highlighting a whole bunch of lines that were beautiful. The paper floated Aww. with a pendulum swaying sway down to the pile of bills and junk mail below. There was so much quirkiness, like the, the housekeeper, Lisa. Like I, I loved that. I loved that that was how you ended the chapter. You know, nevertheless, not a single light in the house had been turned on yet. The girl across the street would have been really surprised, um, which is the girl across the street is how they refer to her, right? So just mm-hmm. very, very elegant, incredibly impressive. Honestly, it's the writing is phenomenal. The the, the setup Aww. is phenomenal. A question I had, which is not something that I that was bothering me, but I was wondering how old each of these people were. And mm. I knew for sure with Isabel, like not for sure, but like I had a great idea with Isabel because of the description and I had a great idea with Marianne, but I didn't with Elliot, but you told us when you summarized. And then another question I had is, what about Marilyn Monroe exactly? Like, is this something that we're going to figure out? I know it's not a huge plot point, or at least I don't think it is, but I'm, I'm hoping it's more than device. I'm hoping it's more than, than a way to convey a beautiful, tormented, tortured woman. So what is it about? Like, is she, I don't know, which, did she want to be an actor? Did she, like, that's something that I wanted to know, but I didn't need to know in the first chapter. I just needed to know as the story unfolded or else it might seem a little devicey. And then if, yeah. if this isn't a characterization that's going to be held, not that you have to mention Marilyn Monroe all the time, but like if I'm not going to understand what her connection is to Marilyn, then I just wouldn't do that. Um, yeah. So yeah, these are all my comments. It's really, really, really strong pages. Great job. Just coming back to the letters themselves. Like I, mm. I liked that these letters almost had their own feeling and their own vibe and were like tracking the letters as they're going. And it was very cinematic to me how you were doing that. And I almost wonder if, I don't know, you could focus even more on the letters themselves in terms of their actual arrival. Cause I think in one of them, well, in the first, so in the first one, it says she didn't go to the mail. Uh, she didn't check the mail that morning. No, nor would she this afternoon. And she doesn't even get her letter. Right. So mm-hmm. that's why I like Marion because she actually gets her letter. So mm-hmm. I just kind of want that, like, it doesn't have to be like magical or mystical or anything like that, but just like an extra like sparkle and essence to mm-hmm. these letters, like from where they're going, from where they begin to where they're going. Do you know what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say? Mm-hmm. I, I have a question there. So yeah. you don't think that Sherry should begin with the man who's writing the letters before they all go out and we see five different letters spread out before him so that as the reader, we understand that we are all six different letters or however many there are 
are that we know that these letters are then going to go out and then we follow them out into the world or no, you like just having the letters arriving? That's a good idea too. I like that idea. Because everything ties into him, right? Mm -hmm. So all of these characters, that is how they're all linked. Like if Sherry starts the way she has each different person, they feel really random. Some get their letters, some don't. But the common denominator here is the man who writes the letter to all of them. And so, you know, it's all going to circle back to this man. So I was wondering if beginning with him, who's the common denominator, is not kind of a more golden thread to stitch through the story. Um, One of the things I was also thinking about in relation to that was the title, because you asked us in your notes, um, this is my working title, but I'm welcome to feedback on that. Mm -hmm. That was actually one of my, like, I don't know when we're going to discuss the title, but now probably seems like a good time because if you're calling it reconstructing Theo, then I do agree Bianca's idea is great because otherwise who is Theo and when do we meet him and who is he in relation to everybody? Because if you're going to call it that, we need to either meet him really quickly or we need to have a greater sense of who he is. And right now it's just everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't, um, you focus more on everybody else because there's six others and one him. So the ratio is totally off in terms of who we're focusing on uh, Mm. others versus him. So I do think you need a title change if it isn't really about Theo and it's about everybody else. But Mm. if he starts to play a bigger role or like Bianca said, there's a frame narrative or something like that where we we set him up writing the letters, then I think the title works. We don't get Theo's POV, do we? Because you mentioned it was six and there's six people who have the letter. So there's no way. Okay. So here's the thing. I love the idea of starting with the letters because it centers on the letters. I worry that it'll make the pace drag because we'll have to follow the letters. And then, and, and also people are going to probably read the jacket copy of the book and know about the letters before mm-hmm. they start the story. So, so I like it as long as it doesn't drag the pace and mm-hmm. you have a, a, a impressive ability to convey information in a short, um, in a short space. Like we read two and a half chapters in five pages. So, so if you can do it, I love the idea. I just don't, wouldn't want the pace to drag because yeah. we're not going to get Theo's POV later on anyway. So it would almost be like an omniscient, the letters POV, like the letters are yeah. personified. I don't know. Yeah. Sorry, before you carry okay. on this show, just one yeah. more thing. And I want to throw a spanner in the workshop because I kind of disagreed with Cece and Carly, the thing that they both loved. And I loved the quirkiness as well. But what, as a creative writing instructor, what I really struggled with was we are wanting to get to know Marion in Marion's chapter. And mm-hmm. we have a whole page about Lisa, who mm-hmm. is the next door neighbor. And all she does is house sit. And I'm assuming we are not going to see Lisa again because Marion is going to answer the letters call and go and see Theo. So mm-hmm. Lisa is like a nobody character. Same goes for Dale. Elliot has this whole quirky mm-hmm. conversation with Dale, but Dale's not important to the story. And mm-hmm. when you've got six main characters, and in fact, even like seven, because Theo, even if he's not a point of view character, he's a very he's an integral character right he's the catalyst mm-hmm. to the whole story so mm-hmm. for us to then spend a whole page on these secondary characters who aren't even secondary characters because we're mm-hmm. not going to see them again mm-hmm. i i worry that you are giving the reader too many characters and they like oh it's marion mm-hmm. it's her husband it's lisa it's elliot oh dale calls elliot and i'm wondering if there isn't a way to maintain that quirky essence mm-hmm. and i feel like as a writer you can do that because you're a really really good writer like these pages were so strong they were so good but I wonder if you can maintain that without shifting that spotlight to these 
completely peripheral characters mm. who I don't know that we need to be getting. I found like I learned more about Lisa in Marion's chapters <laughs> than what I learned about Marion. And I know mm. Carly and Cece, you guys said you loved that, but for me, that was highly problematic. So Carly and Cece, fight with me now. Come back. I don't think, I mean, it's a fair comment that we were um, focusing on Lisa, but to me, she wasn't Lisa. To me, she was the girl across the street. To me, it was almost like I was seeing the house, you know, I, it didn't bother me. I, I understand the logic behind it though. Like but, but it's so a short. To me, she she's get- a character in the house. Like she's, she is a thing instead of a person. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. Like, yeah. That's how and, I felt and- too, which is mean, but no, I, we don't mean it mean. We just mean yeah. it like she wasn't personified. She was more like, yeah, creating but, atmosphere. But she, she makes these assumptions about their lives and she's even wrong. So it's almost misleading the reader into thinking their lives are something that they're not. Or because- that their lives are perceived as something that they're not, which it would indicate someone is obsessed with image, which would indicate someone who is private. Like, I think that adds to characterization. I thought this was just a voice thing because when something is literary, I assume that the author is going to take the, all the creative liberties to tell the story in the most creative way possible. And so I took this as I am immersing myself in this author's world, which I do much more liberally with literary fiction because it's a vibe, right? It's like the essence, it's the storytelling. And I'm more willing to suspend any of those thoughts when I'm reading literary fiction because we know that the story might take a little bit longer to get going or it's more about a character. So I'm willing to suspend that belief a lot more with literary fiction. So it didn't bother me for this one. Sherry, have any of your beta readers ever said anything about this? Well, it's funny. I, I used to have a lot more characters. <laughs> I've cut down a lot. Um, not necessarily right in the beginning, but having too many uh, too many characters was feedback I've had. But um, you mean POV characters, or do you mean like, like people in in each of the POV characters' worlds? No, oh, actually more POV. So, um, in, in fact, one of the reasons I chose these three near the beginning was just feedback of people liking them and them because they're you know it is a slow burning story, and so just trying to kind of start with some that I had people had singled out in the past as being favorites because there, there were quite a few places I could start with each character it's funny because until about two months ago I've been working on this book for 15 years and until about two months ago the book always started with Marion the, the that first sentence hasn't changed for 15 years so it actually warmed my heart that you guys like the idea of it starting that way I just I'd this kind of goes back to getting getting rejections and not knowing what it is and so one thing I just thought was is it just starting too slowly and the Lisa thing one of the themes of the book is about people not really knowing other people you know it's just all these kind of piecing uh, people only knowing a small portion of of another person and and so I had that opening chapter that opening sentence that opening scene and I had just moved it because I thought a it goes into present tense and I wondered do people think it's an accident you know so I just thought maybe that should be a second chapter because so people could see I, I know how to write before I get to that um and then I didn't know if it just started too slowly so so it's it's really interesting hearing it's I mean it's like almost made me tear up because I'm like oh you do think it should be the opening line <laughs> because it's it's been my opening line for so long but then I think Bianca's point is really good that it, it's funny when I you know it's five pages and a good portion of it is devoted to people that we never see again and you know I, I think that's it so I don't know if that means cutting it or maybe having that appear in later 
parts, you know, with Elliot, I'm trying to convey that he's in this kind of not oppressive job, but you know, he's, he's fielding calls like this. So this is me kind of introducing to the world that Elliot's living in. When Elliot gets the letter, he's kind of being taken out of just this very kind of coasting along meaningless existence. And so that was, you know, a, a goal with the Dale conversation is just capturing what his day-to-day life is like. So my point is just, so when in five pages, these are the characters that we are getting on board with. We've got mm. Isabel, we've got mm. Mary, We've got Brian, we've got Lisa, we've got Elliot, we've got Dale, and we haven't even met the other point of view characters yet. So by the time we've then met the other point of view characters, that is a lot of names. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of things to expect the reader to be keeping hold of. So with Dale, instead of having like one uh, one client who he's dealing with, who's really, you know, belaboring a point or whatever, maybe he deals with three or four calls from different people who are unnamed and mm. their complaints are all inane just so that we can see that you know how mundane and awful his job is so that yeah. we're not because I was starting to think Dale was important mm-hmm. and you spend so much time with Lisa that I was like okay Lisa's going to be important mm-hmm. um, and that's just my only concern is that yeah. it's going to be a lot of names it's a lot of characters and especially you know I say this now Sherry because I've just finished a book in which I have six seven points of view characters okay. um, and my reader are all like they were going which one is Zelda again is she the one with the tattoos where she you know and the thing is like it took them about I don't know about 80 pages to get it right in their heads like Mm. who each of these people are and that's my only concern for you is you want us to be so immersed in each of these people that later in the book the reader is not going which one's Isabel which one's Marion and I just worry that like Lisa and Dale is just going to detract from that that's my my only concern yeah Yeah. that was my biggest critique of of the nine perfect strangers book is that I kept like she writes really short chapters too um Mm. and I just felt like it took so long for me to get to know everybody Mm. and I spent a lot of time trying to organize all these thoughts in my head those like when I was reading that one another one I was thinking of is the slap I don't know if you guys read that it came out many years ago but that Mm. oh that one's a really good one I think it's six POVs it's really really good and it has people of all ages and things like that so it was also made into a BBC miniseries or Mm. for BBC Australia I think but it was very very good so I would also look at that one yeah I will okay other questions you have for us Sherry um uh the Marilyn Monroe thing I think I need to change that because I actually had I gave I had I did a conversation like this with my sister the other day who hadn't you know I just gave these pages I said just ask me stuff about it right and she was like oh I haven't seen that interview with Marilyn Monroe and it made me realize I think I just wrote that I liked the idea of her making an analogy and then not liking the analogy and and so that was just her comparing the water to Marilyn Monroe but I think it's almost too it's another name <laughs> so I think it might be something to read it so the answer regarding Marilyn Monroe is no that's not a motif it's not you know it was just more of a to get kind of into her head so I'm gonna and are we in present day is this like 2021 or no it's um it's set in 2005 and the reason for that is I wanted it before smartphones take over but it had to match up to where Theo could hit all these milestones and so it's 2005 but I I need to I need to kind of I would just date 
date stamp each chapter. So you've put the character's name and you've put where it is. So I would just say, Marion, you know, this place and then this date. So that it also helps the reader because when you got to the second chapter, I was like, how soon after the last chapter did this happen in terms of the timeline? And date stamping is just a really easy way for the reader to understand that. Yeah, that's a great idea. I'll do that. A thing I worry about is it feeling boring because it is a slow burner. That's that's why I was thinking about starting with Theo in terms of the letter, because if you don't really give us what's in the letter, then we are intrigued. Like what's in the letter? Who's he sending it to? Why has he chosen these very six specific people that he has to see before he dies? So I don't know. For me, that would add a bit of intrigue, but, but I don't know. What was your question about that, Cherry? Uh, It just reminded me, so one of my main, my vision for the book from the start was that you have all these six characters and through them, you're getting this real clear picture of this man. And my original vision was we never even meet him. And yet by the end, we know exactly who he was. We see the impact he had on these six people. We see the the arcs that his letter set each character on. Some point in the last few years, my writing group and I decided we need to meet him a little bit because while artistically it might be an interesting idea, it would be really frustrating to never actually spend time in a room with him. So that's a, a change I made over time, but it's still, but that concept is still there where you hopefully by the end without really without ever hearing it from him you're you're kind of hearing his story told by everyone but him I guess and by the end feel like you know him and yet at the same time the book really belongs to these other six people and the journeys they were set off onto by these letters and I have contemplated either as a prologue and you guys talk about prologues a lot maybe as a prologue because he's you know he's nearing death but he does have a nurse and I have and I have written a chapter that I may or may not use as a prologue that basically has this nurse in her scrubs getting out the door at the post office and and going and mailing these letters and so it doesn't really tell much more about plot but it just as a starting point so far I've opted not to use it but that is a thing I've contemplated is starting with the mailing of the letters I think that's why receiving the letters is important because the letters are so important and the fact that Isabel doesn't get her letter to me that like deflates that first chapter so I think we Mm. do need more of like the actual letters leading us somewhere as like the little I don't know Hansel and Gretel type of thing right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cece you're the expert on asking very specific questions early on for you in terms of this novel what would be the very specific question that you would want the reader to be to be asking like very early on that's going to keep them turning pages even though it's a quiet novel even we've agreed quiet novels still need that that question so for you what would that be think that it all comes down to the will they or won't they like what's what's on the letter yes obviously love the breadcrumb idea carly but then will this person like will melanie go to her father and also i would want to understand the nature of their estrangement just not not all of it because you can't give me too much but but i need to know something so i can ask a specific question so for example you know recently read a a, a novel where the, the protagonist is estranged from her father and and it's because he was abusive as, as a child and left her mom. So I think I would want to know specifically about the pressures, which actually goes back to our plot uh, note on the query letter. Mm-hmm. So you, you feel like in the initial chapter, say with Marion's, for example, you'd want to weave into that a little more about why it is she hasn't talked to him. And I, I want to be asking myself something that's more specific than 
will she go? Because that is true yeah. of everyone. So yeah. it, you, the, the idea is that your beta reader needs to be able to have a very specific question to Marion that is not the same as the question mm. that she would ask of Elliot. I can't be saying, will they go? Will they go? Will they go to right. every single person? That can be a general question, yeah. but I need to be going, you know, okay. So if Marion, let's say Marion needs money. I have no idea what Marion's motivation to actually go is other than the fact that he's dying, but let's say she needs money. Is Marion going to be able to get the bank loan? And if not, is that going to propel her to go see her dad? Let's say she doesn't get the bank loan and if she does go, what's that going to cost her? Like they don't have kids, right? Marianne and her husband. Because mm. one thing I was thinking in my head was like, again, they have kids. If they did, like, is she going to take her child? Because maybe, maybe she's like, I'll go, but I'm not taking your grandkids. Like you're not having that, you know, like it mm. needs to be, I need to be invested in their specific struggle because otherwise the curiosity is all about the letter. And I need to see this letter at some point. Um, <laughs> otherwise it's just going to be this thing like dangly, like in a frustrating, aggravating way. And it it can't be. I would say, I think the question with each of them as it stands, and I'm not saying this is a good enough question and something I need to chew on is, is not will they or or won't they go, but why do they not have a relationship with him? And with each of them, you know, you get this impression early on, they don't have a relationship with him and yet they've been invited. Is uncovering that not so, so, I mean, it sounds like from what I'm hearing, uncovering why they don't have that relationship is not necessarily enough to propel the story forward. For Marion, the daughter? No. Because that's mean, the baseline he, of their estrangement. And then with everyone else, I don't even know what their relationship is. So yeah. I don't even know like what Elliot's relationship to Theo is, which is fine, mm-hmm. but I need, mm-hmm. I need to understand what it will cost him. It's all about cost. Like I said, it's all about power. Mm-hmm. Like what power does Theo hold over these people? He has to mm-hmm. hold some power. Can't just be mm-hmm. the man's death. Otherwise it's passive. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's passive. Yeah. Yeah. No, they yeah. have to come off work. Right. And do all these things and it's really disrupting their lives. Right. So mm-hmm. what do they get in exchange for dropping everything for this man? That's estranged. Yeah. Okay. We're at the end uh-huh. of our episode today. I think we've given Sherry a lot to think about, a yeah. lot to, to chew over. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. Thank, thank you for you your so bravery. Much. And we hope oh my you- gosh, no, this was wonderful. This is like my dream dinner right here. So thank you so much. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky though to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and Francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. 
This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest was born in Taiwan and moved to the States when she was seven. In her past and present lives, she has been a concert pianist, a professional ballet and modern dancer, a business owner, a personal trainer and instructor, an RYT 200 yoga instructor, a post designer, and more recently, author of multicultural fiction. She did not have a tiger mom. She came about her overachieving all on her own. When she is not torturing clients or talking to imaginary characters. She enjoys spending time with her FDNY husband, their son, the happiest little boy in the world, and their two stubborn dachshunds, and trying crazy yoga poses on a stand-up paddleboard. So far, she's not fallen into the water yet. It's my pleasure to welcome Lynn Lau Butler. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. It's wonderful to chat with you, Lynn. Let's talk about your debut, The Tiger Mom's Tale. And it got so much buzz, which is, you know, really tough to do these days during COVID when debut authors are launching during COVID. Extremely difficult to work up any kind of buzz, you know, when marketing people, PR people are struggling to get events going and 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 just to get the authors out there. So can we talk a bit about that, the response to your book? Sure. Um, so I... Very- very happy to hear you say that because I don't really know what's going on with the book outside my own little bubble. So to hear that it has a good buzz is that's really good to know because from my point of view, I have no idea that there's any buzz. Um, but I know my marketing and publicity team are just amazing. They're working so hard. They're always in contact with me, like you know, sending me opportunities to do. Um, and I'm just so grateful for them for getting this out there. 
And I couldn't really, seriously, could not have done it without my team at Berkeley. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, when I was a debut author sort of four years ago, you know, you come into it and you think someone is kind of going to sit you down and go, okay, these are the markers of success. If we have this many pre-orders before the book comes out, we know it's going to be successful. This is, you know, the kind of feedback we're getting and therefore we know the following and this is what you need to do. And you kind of think you're going to get maybe media training or things like that, but you really aren't. No, you are just left out there to figure it out. Um, That's one thing that I found out this year is that we don't know anything and they don't tell you anything. I mean, you can ask and sometimes they'll tell you, but most of the time it's so like, I guess, opaque, like there's no right or wrong answer. And with each book, it's a little different. So that marker of success might not be the same for you as someone else, which is why finding a debut group of people who are going through the same thing with you. And even especially at your same publisher, it was such a big help to me because we could, we could kind of like complain to each other, you know, in a private confidential group, like what's going on? What did this happen to you? This is happening to me. You know, what does this mean? But yeah, you're just left out there to just figure it out yourself. So I have absolutely no idea how my book is doing or if there's even any buzz out there. So Yeah, and it and it's difficult because you you get your first so so for our listeners, you know, you sell the book, you get an advance. The advance is normally split into like two, three, four payments, depending on how the contract is set up. And then, you know, you only start getting royalties after you earn back the advance, but your first royalty statement only comes kind of six months to a year after your novel comes out. And until then, it's really difficult for you to be, you know, tracking the sales and to see if things that you are doing are having a direct effect on sales. So did you reach out to other authors like a year or so before your book came out, Lynn, to ask for advice on what to do? How did you approach being a debut novelist? So I uh, was originally part of the 2020 debut group um, because we thought my book might come out because I actually got this deal in July of 2019. And they welcomed me with open arms. um, And then my book got pushed back to early 2021. And they didn't kick me out of the group, which was really nice because they had already been through it. So I was able to ask them questions. And they, you know, they, from their experience, they told me kind of what to expect, what's, what each publisher's like. And then I kept getting pushed back and pushed back. And then I got pushed back way into summer of 2021. And they still kept me on. And I did start with a 2021 debut group where there was people now ahead of me again, So I've been very fortunate, been surrounded by debut authors who were at least a year or so ahead of me, who a lot of them were at my publisher. So I could kind of get an idea of what's going to happen. So I think it helped me a lot because I'm a control freak. If you can't, if you can't tell by my bio (laughs) and so not knowing what was going to happen or what is considered good or bad. I mean, I still don't know, but at least I have an inkling of, you know, where this is going. I'm exactly the same as you major control freak, which is why, you know, I struggled with not knowing so much and having that support system is huge. And the fact that, you know, your group kind of went ahead of you and experienced this and and were so generous to share their knowledge with you. That's always super useful. But the delays must have been so frustrating because when did you actually sell the novel? It was July 2019. So, you know, usually you wait a year to 18 months at the most, but because of the election um, and then because of COVID and um, the pandemic, and then also because of the anti-Asian sentiments that were happening in the U.S., my publisher just felt it was better, not because they didn't want me to 
get the book out there, but they didn't want me to debut in a climate that was going to be hostile. Um, it's already hard enough to debut, but if uh, they felt that if I debut right after when you know that sentiment was going on, it would just detract from the book itself. Now I am glad that they did. Um, it was basically my book came out two years after I got the deal. It was hard to wait. And a lot of people who sold books after me already came out like a year ago. And it was very hard to wait and it was very frustrating. But now I'm glad just because I feel like we're coming out of the pandemic now and it's a better, it's definitely a better climate. And I also was grateful to be able to have an in-person launch that was not endorsed by my um uh, Penguin Random House because they're not doing in-person events yet, but my work sponsored like hosted one. So it's just nice to connect with readers and people in real life again and be able to talk to them. So yeah, and there's so much out of your control as a debut author, yes. and you know these are things we don't think about. Like I know some debut authors whose debut came out like on the day of you know kind of a media blackout for whatever reason for one cause or another. And so book bloggers weren't on social media talking about books then, et cetera. And I mean, how depressing that your book launch had to wait because of this anti-Asian sentiment. It's, it's horrifying that this is something that even had to affect you as an author or your work. Exactly. And at first my agent and I pushed back because we're like, well, then this should be the time to be putting more Asian American stories out there to put it in people's faces and, you know, instead of shrinking away. And they, they said, yes, we agree 100% with that. But at the same time, because it is a debut, we didn't want to throw you basically into like, if I had been, this is my second or third book, I think it would have been better because people would, you know, have an established audience. So they, you know, these are all things that my marketing and publicity and sales teams and whatever had to consider. And I'm really, really grateful for them that they did consider it. And, you know, I, I really feel like things work out the way they're meant to be in the end. And yes, waiting two years was really hard, but now I'm glad that they did. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the book a little bit. I just want to read your opening line because yeah. I'm also a creative writing instructor and I'm always telling oh. my students, you know, you need to grab the reader's attention straight away. That first line is so important or the first paragraph. And yours just made me spit out my coffee when I was reading it because I <laughs> loved it so much. It was so attention grabbing. So Alexa Thomas had just bitten into a sesame ball when her mother told her she was in love with a woman. So, I mean, that is super attention grabbing. Was that always going to be your first line or is that something that you came back to later in the revisions? Um, yes, that was always my first line, except in different incarnate reincarnations or whatever you call it. Um, it you, and I think I, at one point it said, um, Alexa Thomas had just bitten in a sesame ball when her mother told her she was leaving her stepfather for another woman. And somebody was like, that's too many people in there. And I'm getting confused about who is who. So I always knew she was going to be biting into a sesame ball when she hears this news. It was just how I got a, you know, her to say it. So, and it used to be written in the first person. So it used to be, I was, I had just bitten into sesame ball when my mother told me, you know, she was in love with a woman, but then we changed it to third person for various reasons. Okay. So, so I want to talk about that because something that our listeners are really interested in is the revision process. So getting a first draft down is one thing you feel this huge sense of achievement when you've got the first draft down, but you know, that is just, uh, there, there's a saying, and I keep forgetting who to credit to, but they say, you know, the first draft is shoveling sand into the sandbox so that on rewrites, you can build sandcastles. 
and and that's so incredibly true. So can you take us through the the process of how long it took to write the first draft of your novel, how you wrote that, did you revise as you were writing, and then I want to come back to why you changed the um, point of view and at what point in the process you did that. Okay, so I started this book in January 1st of 2015. I've never written anything before. I've never taken a writing class except like what it was needed for a school. I was not a writer. I did not, but I was an avid reader. I used to read five to seven books a week. Um, I always had a book on me. And for some reason, I woke up on January 1st, 2015 and said, I'm going to write a book. And this first book, which is the first draft of this book, was called Fit Girls Don't Cry. It was more about uh, Alexa's, um, as her life as a personal trainer on the Upper East Side of Manhattan than it was about her journey to find her heritage. And I wrote that in six months without anybody reading it. Like I didn't have critique partners. I didn't have, you know, and nobody knew I was writing. I just wrote this book and then I started querying it, not knowing that you're not supposed to do that. You do not send a first draft to agents Plus my um, query letters were very cringeworthy. Like, um, you know, they tell you to personalize it. And because I was a trainer and somebody liked running, I was like, I hope my book gets you all hot and sweaty, you know, and something very inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. I like, I still remember who it is. And if I ever meet this agent in person, I'm going to apologize to her. (laughs) Hopefully I didn't creep her out. But um, anyway, so I did everything wrong. I, you know, sent off a first draft. I didn't have anybody read it. And it was a really bad first draft. There was a lot of telling. There was a lot of exposition, backstory. There was no plot. It was just kind of, I mean, there was, but it wasn't the focus. So then I realized that this is not how you do it. So I started Googling how to write a book. <laughs> and then I, you know, read, you know, kind of like blog posts and podcasts like yours, where people talk about what, how they did it. Um, I realized I needed to find a critique group. So I joined two critique groups and finally had people read it for the first time. Um, so many new writers I met, and I just met one today. I'm a yoga instructor also. And I just taught a class and the woman came up to me and said, I also have been writing. Um, and I said, well, do you have a critique party? She's like, no, I'm afraid to show it to anybody because I don't want them to say bad things. I'm like, but being a writer is putting your work out there. And there are always going to be critiques, whether it's from agents, critique partners, editors, reviewers, like I'm getting reviews most of them good, but some of them are ripping the book apart, saying it's the worst book they've ever read. I'm like, you need to build a strong, thick skin and starting with critique partners. People need to, you know, you need to hear from a different perspective. So I really took all that. I have a very open mind. So I took everything and just rewrote it. And I did not revise that first draft as I was writing. I just wrote it and it was done. And after that, I revised, revised and changed like the opening, um, changed a lot of stuff. And it still didn't get me an agent. So I put the book aside and wrote a second book. And I had a lot of interest in that one. I got like 15 agent requests. But again, there was something wrong with the story structure. They loved the story. They didn't like the way I, I structured it. Um, I didn't know what to do because, you know, I'm never taking a writing course. I don't know. I didn't know about the three act structure or any of the other stuff. So I gave up. I actually stopped writing. Like I love revisions. Love, love, love it. I love taking what people give me and rewriting. And even with all the critiques from critique partners, critique groups, um, I entered a lot of like contests. It just, I didn't know what I was doing. So I gave up writing for about a month. And then a month later, I was like, you know, I have a great idea how to turn that first book, which was Fit Girls Don't Cry, into a more personal book about my journey as an Asian American. I was born in Taiwan, moved here when I was seven. So I looked Asian on the outside, but I always felt American on the inside. 
And that split between like not feeling like I belong here in America, but then when I go back to Taiwan, they thought I was too American and that I was foreign and they called me their American cousin. So not belonging anywhere. So I sat down and I revised the entire book. I kept the same characters, the same basic plot, but I focused it more on her looking for her heritage and trying to connect with something that happened, you know, a traumatic event. And that's how this book, so that was like, what, three? So I started writing in 2015. So this is 2018 now. And then I entered it in Pitch Wars. I didn't get in, but the four mentors who did ask for my full all gave really good feedback. And so then I revised again. And by this time, this is like the 20th, 100th revision. I don't even know. And I started querying. And an agent who I requested the second book actually remembered me and said, I would love to read this. I sent it to her. She gave me an R&R, which is a revise and resubmit. And um, for those that don't know, it's just, you know, they give you feedback. And then if you can make the massive revision that they want, they want you to submit it to them and they'd be willing to look at it again. So it's not a no, it's uh, it's not a yes. And and in my agent's case, she, she said it was her way of seeing how I would take her critiques and put them in and see if we would work well together. And I said, I did the revisions in like three weeks, sent it back. And 10 days later, she she said, I would like a phone call. And so it took me four years from the time I started writing, almost four years exactly to find in. So four years, three manuscripts to find an agent. That's amazing. I love these success stories. And I love that you didn't give up because it's so easy to go, well, I tried and it's not working, etc. But I feel like compelling stories are always going to call us back to them, you know, and, and like you were saying, with your second novel, it was so difficult to figure out the structure after the fact. And that's one of the hardest things to fix is structure. You know, if, if you have an unlikable narrator, you can fix that. If you have some plot point that's, you know, is is a problem, you can fix that. If, if an agent says there isn't enough tension or there isn't enough conflict, you can fix that. But when an agent comes, comes back and says the structure didn't work for me, that is so difficult to fix because it's like building a house yes. and then having to knock it down and then build it from the ground up again. So in terms of the feedback you got in, in the R&R, what were the kind of things that, you know, your agent suggested in terms of making changes? So I'm going to... Uh, two part to this. The first, because she gave feedback for both the book that sold and the second book, which actually I sold, she sold as my second book. So that book is being um, published too. So the first one, she told me my pacing, the biggest thing was pacing, was lagging. She said um, there were a lot of unnecessary side stories or like backstories that was kind of pulling the pacing down. And she was like, come on, I just want to get to the whatever. So she had me, she wanted me to tighten up a lot of um, the story before she actually goes to Taiwan. That was number one. Number two, she had a lot of ideas of, you know, what to, because my, this story, The Tiger Mom's Tale is a dual timeline. It goes back and forth between present and 22, 28 years ago. I had a lot of past scenes that were, I had mentioned in the present already. And she said, if you do that, you don't really need it because then you're just kind of reinstating what you've already said. So I had to cut, she wanted me to cut a lot of back the past scenes, but she didn't tell me which one she wanted to see if I could figure it out myself. And so I did, I sat down and I, you know, was like, oh, okay, well this has been repeated. So then, and then where to insert those past scenes so that it's seamless from present to past. That's a hard part of dual timeline. Like a lot of times you just insert a scene and it makes absolutely no sense. You're jumping from one. So that was um, another thing. And then in my second book, the one that she eventually sold as my second book, the one that didn't sell, it was a structural issue. And this is the one where I had to tear the whole thing down. I had structured it as a part one was from one person's point of view. Part two was from somebody else's point of view. 
but she was dead. So she was coming back from the grave. <laughs> and my, a lot of people did not like that. It, they felt like it was kind of like you weren't immersed into the story of both characters because it's a dual point of view. So I realized I had to combine them somehow, but one of the characters is already dead when the story starts. So it was really hard trying to figure out. And it took me years. Like I put that story aside, I think in 2017 and worked on the first one. So 2018, 2019, I didn't start working on it. So it took me two and a half years to figure out how to fix the story. And I kept saying to everybody, I don't know how to fix the story. But then once my first book was on submission, my agent and I sat down, we discussed it. She didn't tell me what to do. She just, we talked through it. And I said, how about this and this? And I gave her an outline of what I wanted to do, how to restructure it. She goes, I like that. So while I was on submission, I worked on basically tearing the whole house down and then putting it back together with their stories intertwined. And the part two was now also their stories intertwined, but with like journal entries while she was in China. So yeah, it was very hard, but I love revisions. I don't know why. I would rather do revisions than a first draft. Like I hate first drafts. Uh, me, me too. I, I believe the magic happens in the rewrites. I always say, you know, that first draft is just getting the damn words down on the page so that yeah. you can come back to them and make them something really, really special. And, you know, there's something so frustrating about a book when it doesn't work. Yeah. And you know it doesn't work, but you know you can make it work, but you just don't know how the hell to make it work. So for me, I also love that kind of brain itch that happens as you're facing this challenge of how to fix it and the idea generating and the brainstorming that happens at that phase of it. And when you finally have that light bulb moment mm -hmm. in which you know how to fix it, I mean, when you figured it out, that must have been like a hell of a moment for you. You must have been oh, yeah. so happy. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, for two and a half, three years, I kept saying, I know there's something good in there. I just don't know how to fix it. I don't know what to do. And it was like when I started writing and all of a sudden everything, it's just like you said, everything clicked. I was like, aha. And it made the book so much stronger. Like I love my second book. I think I love my second book more than the Tiger Mom's Tale. Um, I love the Tiger Mom's Tale, but this second book is really like just... I don't know, speaks to me, I, I guess. That's brilliant. And it's great that like none of these books for you ended up in a dusty drawer somewhere because that's what seems to happen for so many writers. They have these learning novels. It's like a starter novel. They write it and then they aren't able to sell it, but then they learn from it enough to be able to write something else. And it's amazing that you took two novels that were rejected and you've managed to sell both of them. That's pretty much unheard of. Yeah, I can't, I really um, can't believe I did that. I'm so like lucky and happy that I was able to do that. And I credit a lot of it to my agent. She is so brilliant. She just knows the business so well and she knows what will sell, what won't. And she, you know, she had said, you have great ideas. We just have to figure out how to make them, right? And it just, it's incredible. I have to say, it's like, I'm so happy and I'm working on like three other books right now. And yes, one of those might end up in the drawer somewhere, but I'm hoping that, you know, and I'm so open to critiques that anything, whether it's editors, you know, that are reading, whatever, anything they tell me, I try to put it away because you never know when you can bring out that piece of advice for another book. And I think that's what made me able to fix both of them was because I kept, first of all, I kept reading. That's really important. You got to read and I read everything. I don't read any, just, just my genre. I write, read everything and just kind of take notes about how did they get that pacing to go there? How did they reveal the big surprise and what point of the book and, you know, how it was structured? Is it dual point of view? Is it first person, third person? Why did they choose that past tense versus present? Um, it all kind of, you know, comes back at some point to be useful.
Yeah, absolutely. And collaborating with an agent is amazing when you're able to do that. Could you tell us who your your agent is and why you approach them just for our listeners who are going out on submission and are constantly looking for agents to query? Um, my agent is Rachel Brooks with uh, Bookends. And I, when I first queried the first two books, I did not, I mean, I did research and found, you know, agents that in my genre, but I kind of just sent queries to anybody and everybody who was within that genre. I didn't research them. By the third book, when I queried, I really, really researched them. I mean, almost stalked them because I wanted to know what they were like, not just as agents, but as people, like, are they, you know, receptive? Do they give editorial feedback? Are they funny? Um, are they going to be answering your questions right away or does it take three years, you know, three months, whatever, for them to get back to you? And I really, really did research and came up with a list of only like 20, 25. Like the first book, I think I queried 65 people. The second one, like 45. And this one, I only went out to like 20, 25. And it was like a dream list of people who not only sold and represented my genre, but has actually sold to my dream imprints who get back to me right away or, you know, in a timely fashion. And Rachel is just someone who has been on my radar because she had requested a second and bookends is such a great agency. They um, help emergency writers so much. They have a pop, they have a YouTube channel where they do videos of, you know, things like how to query, what, what are agents looking for right now? What kind of genre needs, how much, you know, how many word count, everything that you could possibly think of. And they're really, really helpful to emerging writers. So I knew I wanted to be at Bookends because not only that, but also because they are mid size group there. I think they have 10 to 14 or something agents. I didn't, I was kind of wary about querying someone who was uh, in business by themselves, because what happens if something happens to them, whether they stop agenting or they get sick, you know, where, what would happen to me? And then also being a big agency, that's great. You know, being able to be represented by someone that's huge, but at the same time, as a debut author, you're like a little fish in a big pond. And are you going to get the kind of attention that you would, if you go out of the mid size where they will push you a little more. So that's why I wanted to midsize and Rachel in particular, because she read my first book in 10 days and got me feedback in 10 days, which anybody who is querying knows that's incredibly fast. So I knew she was going to be on top of it. And she is like, she's, when I email her, she gets back to me right away, you know, or she'll say, I got it. I'll get back to you in two weeks. And those R and R's really are a test. I really see them as that, you know, it's for the agent to see, do you take critique well? Because a lot of writers don't. A lot of writers are just like, well, you didn't get it. So that's your problem. I'm not going to change it, et cetera. So, exactly. you know, they want to see, are you open to it? Are you, you know, prepared to um, to listen to their feedback and incorporate it? We're almost up for time, Lynn. So I'm not able to keep you much longer. The last thing I wanted to ask you was something that we spoke about earlier in terms of changing your point of view. So you said oh. it was originally first person and you changed it to third. Was that part of race? Rachel's feedback when she gave the R&R or how did that happen? That happened really early on when I was trying to change it from Fit Girls Don't Cry to A Tiger Mom's Tale. Um, I had, I think I won a contest on Twitter or something where like it was a published author had um, offered to do a first page first, uh, I'm sorry, first chapter critique. And she said to me, because you're doing multiple point of views and it was going back in time the first person was the main character, but everybody else is in third person. She go, you know, a, a more experienced writer could probably pull it off, but she felt like it wasn't working for me because it was jarring and it was coming out. She's like, I think it would, and she, and 
I took her feedback and I thought about it. I was like, you know what? She's right. I don't, I'm not experienced enough to pull that off. So that's why I changed it to third person really early on. Wonderful. Lynn, it's been such a delight chatting with you. The time has just flown by. Uh, half an hour. Sorry, up. I blabbed on and on. <laughs> it was amazing. Thank you for so generously sharing your experience because, you know, there's so much about being a debut author that's mysterious and people have just got to figure out as they go. And we're trying very much to demystify that for our listeners so they know what they're getting themselves into. And and, you know, how, how best to, to tackle this beast that is your debut novel. So, so thank you for, for sharing that generously with us. For our listeners, it's The Tiger Mom's Tale. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember. It just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. 
ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.